Welcome to SCOTUScast, a project of the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy Studies. Our contributors join us from around the country to bring you expert commentary on U.S. Supreme Court cases as they are argued and decisions are issued. The Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker. Hello and welcome to SCOTUScast. I'm your host, Justin Drower, on behalf of the Faculty Division of the Federalist Society. We're here today to discuss Groff v. DeJoy, which was argued before the court on April 18th. It's my honor to introduce our guest today, Hiram Sasser. Mr. Sasser is the Executive General Counsel for the First Liberty Institute, where he oversees First Liberty's litigation and media efforts. Mr. Sasser's practice focuses primarily on First Amendment and other constitutional and civil rights issues. He has numerous appearances on ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox News, CNN, and the BBC, as well as being heard on various radio stations throughout the United States, Asia, Africa, and Europe. In 2016, Mr. Sasser took a leave of absence to serve a temporary assignment as the Chief of Staff for the Attorney General of Texas. He currently serves as an adjunct professor of law at both the University of Texas at Austin School of Law and Oklahoma City University School of Law. He is also a co-counsel in this case, representing Mr. Groff. And with that introduction, I'll hand things over to Mr. Sasser. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, you know, this was a, a fantastic case uh, starting from the very beginning. Uh, we we came in uh, at uh, at First Liberty to represent Gerald Groff once it got to the Third Circuit uh, and brought in uh, Baker Botts with uh, Aaron Street as our lead counsel uh, with us at the Third Circuit and then on to the Supreme Court. Uh, just give you a little factual background just to kind of get a, a flavor for this. Uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, you know, it may seem familiar to a lot of folks. It's uh, the area of, uh, it's really called Amish country. And a lot of people uh, visit that area uh, because, you know, the, it's it's kind of fun to see, uh, you know, way people lived, you know, uh, some time ago and, and continue to live that way uh, by religious choice. And and it's kind of I call it the land of religious exemptions in a sense because it's uh, it's where and religious accommodations because it's where uh, everybody is accommodating uh, like on the roadways just on an everyday basis you're accommodating somebody uh, based on their faith and so it's just fascinating to me that the case came from there but Gerald uh, I think is a twelfth generation person living in uh, Lancaster Pennsylvania. And I apologize, I'll sometimes call it Lancaster because I'm from Texas, uh, but I know they call it Lancaster there. Uh, so I, I slip it a little bit. But uh, but Gerald uh, Groff uh, grew up there in, in Lancaster and uh, uh, went off and served uh, as a missionary uh, for a number of years in, in various capacities uh, in uh, Asia and Africa. Uh, he decided he wanted to uh, uh, come back to Lancaster and to uh, start a career. And the post office was a, a great place for him in his mind because, well, he's, uh, he has a religious objection to working on Sundays. He had grown up uh, as a Mennonite, but now considers himself an evangelical Christian, but is very committed to honoring the Sabbath. Uh, 
uh, in the post office, they, they didn't have any Sunday deliveries and, and no one worked on Sundays and it was great. So uh, Gerald uh, got a job as a rural carrier associate. Uh, that uh, position uh, was is literally a, a, a position that he can end up doing a, any number of routes or any number of things uh, in the area and, and enjoyed that for quite some time in the uh, Quarryville post office until uh, Amazon cut a deal with the uh, Postal Service. And so that's what led to Sunday deliveries uh, for the post office. And, and uh, in the beginning, the post office accommodated, accommodated Gerald and uh, eventually decided they were not going to accommodate Gerald. And what's fascinating is they were going to accommodate, they were accommodating Gerald when they took away that accommodation where he did not have to participate in the Sunday deliveries he was very close seniority wise to becoming a full uh, carrier with his own route and he would have been exempt from Sunday deliveries. So he probably only had a few Sundays left that he would have to violate his faith. Uh, but he, his faith was so strong. He said, I can't do that. Uh, so he chose to transfer to Holtwood, which is another postal uh, area, another post office that is more rural and no Amazon deliveries were happening at that time. He forfeited all of his seniority and went back to the back of the line. And, uh, but of course, Amazon deliveries came there as well. The, uh, uh, one of the fascinating things about this case is that the government, and I'll highlight this a little bit later, but the government made a lot of hay over the fact that, well, this is a small post office. There's only a few postal workers. Well, goodness sakes, if he can't deliver on Sundays, that you know that puts this burden on just a handful of other people. Uh, but for the most part, what they did in that area was that all the rural carrier associates would report to the Lancaster Annex, and they all became a fungible resource. So you might have 40 of them showing up on a particular Sunday uh, to go deliver uh, around maybe approximately 20 or 22 routes, and so uh, sometimes only 15 routes. And and uh, and so as a result, uh, there there were plenty of uh, of, of other folks, not only who who could do it, but many of them were enthusiastic about doing so because just as Gerald would have to be paid overtime because he'd already worked too many hours that week to deliver on Sunday, so too would uh, uh, the other uh, the, the other anybody who filled in for him anyway. Uh, but but uh, uh, so so the case arose because eventually Gerald uh, resigned rather uh, after a series of discipline uh, disciplinary actions. And uh, uh, and instead of facing a, a, a the discharge right at the last moment, uh, Gerald resigned and sued and lost at the district court, lost two to one uh, at the Third Circuit, and then here we are at the Supreme Court. Well, the argument uh, is really fascinating because essentially what you have is is on the law under Title VII, which is how this case was brought uh, against the U.S. Postal Service. Under Title VII, uh, the uh, you know Congress uh, passed uh, the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which was later amended in the 70s, to uh, incorporate uh, some some additional changes that'll come into play in a second. But what's what what's fascinating about it is that they had the undue hardship language, and so in other words, you as a as a, an employer, you have an obligation to accommodate the religious practices and beliefs of your employees, unless doing so would cause an undue hardship, 
And when most people you talk to the average person, what's an undue hardship mean? It sounds like it's something that's really significant, like some sort of significant difficulty or expense. Uh, and and they would be right because uh, later on, Congress, uh, when they passed the American with Disabilities Act, they actually defined, they used the same undue hardship language, and they actually defined it as significant difficulty or expense. But Congress did not define uh, undue hardship uh, in the um, in in the Civil Rights Act. Well, well, there was a case that came along, TWA versus Hardison, and I don't want to spend too much time explaining that legal backdrop, but just enough so everybody kind of gets a a picture of this. There was a statute that was on the books uh, talking about you know the Civil Rights Act that required religious accommodations. The EEOC issued some guidelines that included the undue hardship language that I was just talking about for the first time. This statute was then amended after that, but when TWA versus Hardison was before the Supreme Court, uh, the issue that, that was in play was actually the regulations from the EEOC and not the amended statute. So when TWA versus Hardison came down, uh, the, the, the issue, the holding of that case really dealt with the, uh, uh, the, the regulation and not the statute. And so the, the, the Groff team in arguing, Aaron Street from Baker Botts argued the case and he did a fantastic job. Um, and Preliger, uh, Solicitor General Preliger, she did a fantastic job for her side as well. And I'll, we'll describe that a little bit. So, so uh, Mr. Street, when he was making his argument, uh, you know, the, the argument that he was making essentially was, well, the, the, because it was interpreting the regulation and not the statute, the, the court today owes no statute no story, statutory story decisis deference to TWA versus Hardison because the statute was the the was not in play and therefore any language dealing with undue hardship as to the regulation is actually only dicta as to the statute and so therefore statutory stare decisis would not come into play brief definition of statutory stare decisis is most people know what stare decisis means well for statutes statutes when the court is interpreting a statute uh, there, there is a, uh, a, a, a little bit of deference that the court engages in towards Congress, uh, a, you know, or towards previous, uh, court decisions by the Supreme Court interpreting a congressional act. And so if a, a court, a Supreme Court decision comes down interpreting a statute and, Later on, the court wants to revisit that. The statutory story decisis sort of uh, asks some some various questions to see if, in fact, this is what the court the court should overturn what they said themselves, or if uh, the court should wait to see if Congress wants to reverse their if they think it's an erroneous decision, an erroneous interpretation. Uh, and so that was an issue that was at play here. But Justice Thomas starts off rather quickly by asking, well, 
what we just described, isn't this, wasn't the statute really not in play uh, during TWA versus Hardison? And Mr. Street answered uh, that the answer is yes. Uh, you know, it was, it was, it was not in play. He ended up uh, asking a variation of that question also of Ms. Preliger and, you know, she uh, concurred, but, you know, she had some additional gloss on that. Uh, because the government really wanted the court, really wants the court to apply statutory stare decisis. What was fascinating was Justice Kagan had an interesting observation. Uh, she said, well, uh, statutory stare decisis would only apply if our past decision was wrong. So the fact that it was wrong, that uh, if uh, if if the, the the court interpreted undue hardship uh, wrongly before, then uh, it would be a, uh, uh, you know, obviously uh, that's the only time you'd invoke statutory stare decisis. And therefore the fact that they got it wrong or maybe you got it wrong should not uh, uh, be that big of a deal. I, it was sort of an interesting take on it. Uh, but the, the issue, uh, what happened in TWA versus Hardison and why it was such a big deal was that they, the court in TWA versus Hardison declared that uh, or found that undue hardship meant not de minimis uh, so uh, or de minimis. So in other words, if there was any uh, de minimis cost at all on the business, on the business, a, any, I mean, de minimis, anything, then that was an undue hardship. Uh, Mr. Shreed, you know, in, in, in his argument pointed out that, well, uh, you know, that doesn't sound the same thing. I mean, undue hardship sounds, you know, like how the ADA defines it as significant difficulty or expense, uh, but de minimis doesn't seem to match just almost a dictionary definition of undue hardship. Uh, the uh, For the government's part, they actually tr didn't try to defend undue hardship equaling de minimis either in and in one sense, and then tried to defend it sort of in another. And it's really difficult to unpack it because the the Solicitor General, she was very, uh, uh, you know, schizophrenic is a, is, a, is, a, is a harsher word than I would like to use, but I don't know what other word I should use to describe sort of, sort of the waffling around that she had. I mean, to be honest with you, the, the government's position seemed to grow emptier throughout the argument in terms of what was being offered as a substitute for uh, Mr. Street's uh, presentation with significant difficulty or expense. Uh, Ms. Preliger said, well, maybe, maybe undue hardship shouldn't mean de minimis as we understand it, but maybe we can redefine de minimis as substantial expense. And for her part, she pointed to um, uh, the EEOC guidelines that came out after TWA versus Hardison, interpreting uh, undue hardship. And she said that those guidelines seem to add a little bit more oomph, and that's my word for it. Uh, Ms. Preliger was much more articulate, but a little bit more oomph to uh, the, uh, the, the de minimis. So it's sort of a de minimis plus something uh, that the EEOC guidelines seem to offer. And she pointed that, you know, there had been some plaintiffs who had brought cases under Title VII who had survived summary judgment uh, under the uh, undue hardship standard as de minimis, 
and therefore that maybe this is not as uh, as difficult of a problem as as Mr. Street was pointing out. And of course, you know, Mr. Street was pointing out, well, goodness sakes, uh, uh, the uh, you know the this is really a losing proposition for plaintiffs who are seeking to vindicate their civil rights guaranteed to them in the statute because uh, de minimis is really almost nothing and very easy for an employer to to um, to advance and it really uh, uh, put a, uh, uh, a like a giant wet blanket over the requirement of a religious accommodation that uh, uh, Title VII requires. And so as a result, um, there was a lot of back and forth between between both sides kind of talking about terminology, significant difficulty or expense on the petitioner's side, substantial expense on the respondent's side. Justice Kavanaugh kind of challenged both sides to say, well, what do these words mean? And what are the examples that you would that you would talk about? And uh, you know, it was it, it was fascinating because we, we, the the government kind of Miss Preliger kind of morphed her argument throughout to to decide. Well, there was some backpedaling, and she and she kind of landed on. Well, we want to keep de minimis as a name, but but maybe. Uh, uh, have a little bit more room for uh, a, a requirement that the employers actually incur something a little bit more than just de minimis, but wanted to kind of continue to call it that and preserve all of the case law over the past 46 years that have been applying this watered down version of uh, undue hardship under Title VII and as a result, it was kind of difficult to grab a hold of whatever uh, uh, the, the real test that was being offered, other than some examples that Ms. Preliger provided, which were helpful, I thought, in terms of trying to figure out where, they, where, where the government stood. And one of the examples was they thought that payment of any premium wages uh, would be an undue hardship and uh, that, uh, and, and and then providing a, any kind of time off uh, exemption or exception uh, to accommodation to somebody, uh, if it uh, ends up uh, causing a uh, a morale issue uh, in terms of some people are upset about that, uh, that that would be an undue hardship uh, as well. The uh, uh, a couple of interesting points, Justice Alito. Uh, asked about, uh, he said, you know, the, Ms. Preliger was sort of making the, 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 taking the position that, you know, minority faiths have really uh, been okay under the de minimis standard and it's, and they, they've been fine. And Justice Leo held up a bunch of amicus briefs filed by uh, various Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, Seventh day Adventists, and other. Uh, minority faiths and said, well, they they seem to to disagree because they filed on the petitioner side. Uh, and uh, 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 there really wasn't a lot of conclusion from that. But I thought that was that was sort of a, a fascinating moment. Um, 
another interesting, fascinating moment was Justice Sotomayor. She seemed very concerned that corporations were not going to be profitable uh, if they have to comply with all these burdensome government regulations. She seemed very concerned. And, and Justice Kagan shared some of that concern of businesses and corporations, corporate America, uh, sort of suffering financial harm as a result of having to comply with civil rights statutes. So that was sort of an, uh, um, a new uh, uh, and surprising uh, uh, phenomenon that happened uh, during the argument. Uh, so anyway, the, 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 the last thing that I'll say, one of the features that of, the, of, the, of uh, Mr. Street's opening, and there was no pushback really from the government and, and really not a lot of use of this in the, in the argument by the justices. So I don't know if they just didn't find it significant or, or what its significance will end up being. But the 30B6 deposition of the government uh, revealed that they did, could not identify an undue hardship in this particular case with, with Gerald Groff. And um, uh, fascinatingly, the, the, the postmaster for uh, Gerald at the time of, of uh, during the, all the disciplinary hearings or whatever could not, uh, uh, said that prior to them sort of deciding that well, while they were accommodating Gerald, uh, did not uh, actually uh, create an undue hardship. There really wasn't a lot of use of that. But what was also sort of surprising, we had a lot of discussion of this particular case during the oral argument, a lot of the discussion was, how do we find the standard? Uh, one last thing I'll say is several of the justices were like Justice Gorsuch, for example, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Kagan uh, mentioned, maybe we're all coming together, kumbaya, uh, which was uh, this sort of this effort of what is the common ground between both sides? The common ground seemed to be move away from de minimis, but when you drill down to it and with the with the examples, uh, it didn't feel like the government was really committed to that in a meaningful way, uh, more of a slogan way and 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 but not necessarily in a meaningful way, because I think that they didn't want to get pinned down because they had argued and were continuing to argue during an argument that they want to keep all the the undue hardship de minimis precedent uh, still intact. Uh, and we're simply suggesting a, a, a slight modification uh, to that, but in, in sort of labeling, uh, in a labeling aspect, but, but, but it was difficult to figure out in a substantive aspect how that would, how that would play out because they seem to be confident that the current EEOC guidelines were good enough. I don't know that there's going to be a lot of 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 discussion uh, in the opinions. Uh, I mean, I'm not predicting that this case is going to uh, uh, turn on uh, statutory story decisis because for it to turn on statutory statutory story decisis, I really think that you would have had to have the government defending the essential reasoning, the underlying reasoning of the original decision of TWA versus Hardison, and they completely abandoned that, both in the briefing and during the oral argument. Uh, and so there really wasn't an advocate for the old standard 
you know, as such. But uh, uh, but Justice Kagan did, you know, she 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 made a good run at continuously raising the statutory sorry decisive issue. And, and it seems that the the fight there is between Thomas and Kagan, where Thomas is saying, well, I mean, technically it really wasn't. And, and I mean, I get your point that, well, some of the lower courts have treated it as if it is precedent uh, in a sense that 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 it has some sort of uh, uh, like an effect of uh, of of precedent and, and therefore, you know, can sort of you know, grow into that. But that's not really how statutory stare decisis works. You can't sort of, uh, you know, morph into it by accident. Uh, and uh, and Justice Thomas, I think, was trying to make that that point. But Justice Kagan had a counterpoint to that. But for it, for this case to turn on statutory stare decisis, for that to be meaningful, would, would essentially lead, I think, to Mr. Groff having a difficult time in the case and I just don't think that the justices, at least there weren't, there doesn't seem to, there didn't seem to be enthusiasm with, uh, for example, Justice Barrett or even Justice Gorsuch or the Chief Justice uh, to support uh, that kind of uh, analysis. Certainly, Justice Kavanaugh uh, didn't spend any time on on that issue as well. So, I suspect that while there was a lot of briefing on that issue, there was a lot of discussion on that issue. Uh, that it is going to uh, not be something that is going to garner enough support um, on the side of treating Hardison uh, according to statutory stare decisis that it's going to matter a lot in the case. That's just my prediction, but I could be incredibly wrong. Thank you for listening to this episode of SCOTUScast. SCOTUScast is a project of the Federalist Society, a not-for-profit educational organization of conservative and libertarian law students, law professors, and lawyers, founded upon the principles that the state exists to preserve freedom, that the separation of governmental powers is central to our Constitution, and that it is emphatically the province and duty of the judiciary to say what the law is, not what it should be. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast series, including SCOTUScast and Practice Group Podcasts, on iTunes or Google Play. For an archive of past podcasts, as well as audio and video of past Federalist Society events, please visit our website at fedsoc.org multimedia. That's F-E-D-S-O-C dot multimedia. This has been a FedSoc audio production.